I came across an online photo collection once that was, the website was whymychildiscrying.com. Parents uploaded photos of their crying, wailing kids and the reason that they were wailing or crying at that particular moment. One I saw that I found, uh, actually found personal, was a very distraught, screaming, red-faced, little blonde boy because someone had eaten all the muffins. It was him. I guess over the years, I've belabored the point that I believe cannot be belabored, in my opinion. Sinful nature is an inherent congenital selfishness that every human being born suffers from. How many here managed to be born? Okay. Then we all suffer from it, don't we? If we did not have that in us, if that's... Uh, uh, somehow could be overcome by strength and willpower and just trying to be a good boy and good little girls, if that were not the case, then what would we need a savior for? We need saving from this nature because there's only one inevitable end to this nature and that is that we will literally go extinct from cannibalizing ourselves because selfishness cannot exist in a world where there's more than one person without another person being hurt by it. Evolution is the way of this fallen world. Right makes might. Survival of the fittest. But for those of us wanting to live a different way, wanting to live beyond our evolutionary congenital way, because we wanna live in a kingdom that worships God not because we were forced to, not because we were made to, not because somebody selfish decided that you had to in order for some sort of worldly harmony to take place. For all of those who wanna live a different way and worship for that reason, there has to be another way. There has to be another cornerstone on which we build our temple. And of course, that cornerstone is Jesus. So I think that before you begin any of the prophetic sections of, uh, of Daniel, we have to understand what is exactly that we are as Daniel and his friends who wrote the words, we are refugees in exile. We live in a Babylonian-based world, just as they did. And that's what I believe why all of a sudden in chapter two, after he introduced to us what happened in chapter one, after he introduced to us who Nebuchadnezzar was, what the rules were gonna be from now on to, for Daniel and his friends. And then all of a sudden would go to a prophetic section because I believe that this is where it starts. This is where it will trickle down. And you and I, while maybe not living in the physical Babylon, nearly 3,000 years ago, we still live in Babylon. Because the one thing that the statue will prove to us is that every earthly power lived by the same rules. And by the time we get down to the fourth, to the fourth one, the strongest one, and the feet mixed with clay, it is so ingrained into this world that 
I, I believe that, that the prophecy shows that this is where the world will be when it all comes to an end. They'll still be worshiping under Babylon's rules. While those of us are anxiously awaiting to be taken to the kingdom that we've been living in and trying to show Babylon what it's like to live in that other kingdom. So we remember this about, oops, we remember this about the prophets. Oops. Surely the Lord God does how much? Nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Prophecy is not privileged information. See, I brought up the, the sinful nature of the selfishness of, of humankind first that we all live under. And it seems that every time a prophecy is revealed and maybe a prophecy is fulfilled and somebody notices it, uh, we mix in a little bit of selfishness in that and all of a sudden we believe it's privileged information. You know, playing a, an ecclesiastical or a church version of, I know something you don't know. And it's not so, especially as you see it here today. The spirit of prophecy, as I pointed out last week, is God's willingness to still walk and talk with his children. We walk away from him in the garden, we begin to keep him at arm's length, and then we begin to keep him at two arm's length, and then we continue to try to back away from him. And yet he still continues to come and still then through his spirit will actually inhabit a certain amount of people with a gift of prophecy. What to me the gift of prophecy proves is that he's still willing to walk and talk with us even though we're trying to keep him at arm's length. And thank God there's a handful of men and women who said, you know what, I'll let it happen. I'll listen to him as he communicates to me and I'll do what he would have me do usually involved telling another group of people what God's thinking at any particular time. His willingness to operate within the confines of where we put him is the spirit of prophecy. That's why Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus is the word incarnate. He is God incarnate. He is God in human flesh. That's why he is the spirit of prophecy. Everything is all uh, incarnated. It's with him. It's present. God's full presence is in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the spirit of prophecy. That's why his testimony is the spirit of prophecy. And Jesus said, as long as the, as the Spirit dwelt in me, the Spirit is willing to dwell in you. And certain people get this gift. He wants to walk and talk with every child, but Israel and all, and all religious people who came after him wanted to put him at arm's length. We're good with intermediaries. Moses, you go talk to him, because if he talks to me, I'm gonna die. So God says, okay, if you're gonna put me there, I'll still operate within. So he does. We may be surprised on how accessible prophecy really is, even to God's people and God's not people. And I think today is a perfect example. We're told that T King Nebuchadnezzar, oops, I got my, had a dream. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had what? 
had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So the very first time that that prophecy shows up in this book, it comes to who? It doesn't come to Daniel. It comes to Nebuchadnezzar. God's willing to talk to him. And for me, it's more like, you know what? You claim to be Daniel's God. You claim to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. You gave him them, those names. I didn't give him those names. God says to Nebuchadnezzar, you claim to be this little man God. Welcome to the divine, little man God. God gives him a dream. 55 times this word in here for dream is used in the Hebrew scriptures. Six of them are only given to specific people, in other words, that we know their names. Four of them, in all that, four of them are not God's people. They're not Israelites. They're not Hebrews. He comes to them. The office of dreamer is the same as prophet. It has the same penalty. You give false prophecy and you guide other people into uh, deceiving them into false prophecy, you, you, you get stoned to death. The same with the dream. You tell somebody that I had a dream and it leads them astray from God, the same penalty is. So the prophet and dreamer is kind of the same office. Nebuchadnezzar's real thrilled about this dream, isn't he? No. Okay. He has the dream, he wakes up, and he tries to go back to sleep, and it says that his sleep literally left him. His mind was troubled, it says. That word, his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. It's the same word that uh, literally means the beating of footsteps. What's keeping him awake is that it's his heart beating in his ears. Something is beating in in his brain. It's beating in his heart. That's what keeps him up. It sounds like his heart. He intensely, intensely wants to know the content and the meeting. What is going on? After he calls everybody together, he said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is so anxious to understand the dream. He's saying it to these guys. These guys, the king commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, be summoned to tell the king his dreams when they came in and stood before the the king. He has all of these so-called spiritual guides and advisors who are supposed to know what's going on with this kind of thing. By the way, the Hebrews aren't there because I believe their training isn't finished yet. They're being trained to be one of these guys, remember? Remember? I don't think their training is finished yet. The word doesn't get to them quite yet. And they're willing to help, right? Chaldean said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will reveal the interpretation. They're willing to help. That seems a reasonable request, doesn't it? I had a dream. Myrna, tell me the dream, right? You're gonna wanna know the dream first if you're gonna interpret it. It seems like a reasonable request, but not to the king. The king says to the Chaldeans, this is a public decree. If you do not tell me both the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. We get a good idea of Nebuchadnezzar's temperament. 
But if you do not tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall, if you do tell me, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, you tell me the dream and the interpretation. I read somewhere and I wanted to look it up, but I'll just give you a hint. I might, might be getting this totally wrong. But there, are ancient, there was an ancient belief in writings at the time that if the dreamer forgot his dream, then it was from God. He gave him the dream and then took it away. That way, it leaves someone else for God to be able to give the interpretation. But I'm not sure that Nebuchadnezzar's forgotten the dream. What he's stating is, okay, what he's stating is, I don't trust you. I don't trust that your interpretation is going to be from God. He does what a man God does. He threatens them with what? with violence, with death, with torture. And on the other hand, he entices them with what? Gifts and rewards. Fear motivates, doesn't it? I would point out to Nebuchadnezzar that the reason that you don't trust your Chaldeans and your sorcerers is because you're the one manipulating them. Maybe if you held off on the death threats, and maybe if you held off on the rewards, you might get an honest interpretation. But he doesn't trust them. They answer a second time, tell us the dream. And the king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that you do not make the dream known to me. There's only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. He says, you guys are buying for time. What are they doing? They're waiting for something else to happen. They're waiting for something to happen that they can claim is the, the fulfillment of the dream. They're waiting for a rainstorm to come up. They're waiting for the sun to go behind a cloud so they can say, there, there's your sign. And Nebuchadnezzar won't have any of it. You tell me the dream when? Right now. Okay. And it's really great too because it sets up for us. It sets up for us the scene of when it finally gets to Daniel. See, Daniel doesn't know the news. He isn't there. Neither is his friends. They don't know what's happened. They don't know what's going on. So this sets up perfectly that when the news gets to Daniel, this is exactly where God wanted it. This is exactly where the play was supposed to go, right? And they said, moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there's no one else who could declare it to the king except who? except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. That sets up Daniel to a T, doesn't it? That tees up Daniel better than you could ever, ever dream. Because when Daniel comes in, he's gonna tell him, it's not my interpretation. He knows exactly what Nebuchadnezzar wants from these guys. And he tells them, it won't be me. It'll be who? It'll be God. Like I said, it sets him completely up. So when he gets the information, the information is because it's made a public decree and now they're going door to door to everybody who might have some sort of spiritual uh, thing going on telling them that Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill all of us 
and make our houses dung heaps unless we can tell him. That's how Daniel gets the news. Remember, and we're told that Daniel and his friends, they get together and they do what? They pray. And then Daniel sends them away. They all go to their own homes. Daniel, sure enough, at the end of the prayer, what does he get? He gets the dream and he gets the interpretation. And he sends message to Nebuchadnezzar saying, got it. Hold off. Hold off. Especially killing me and my friends. But hold off killing everybody else. I got it. Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. These guys simply can't do it. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. We have an apocalyptic God, one who's willing to reveal, peel the lid off, show us what's really going on. Show us him. He's made known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, that will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you were on your bed. Only Daniel could reveal the history in the future, he says. Only God, sorry. Only God could do it through Daniel. We're not even told that his friends even got it. Daniel was the one that got it. So Daniel is pointing out, remember who's in charge here. Daniel wants it to be clear where this is coming from, where this gift is coming from. You were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue. The statue was huge. Its brilliance, extraordinary. It was standing before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of that statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked on, a stone was cut, not by human hands, and it struck the statue at its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all broken in pieces, became like chaff, the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So you know immediately, like I said, what happens to the Babylonian way of worship the Babylonian way of living. What is its eventual end? This. And the judgment upon this world and the way that, that we worship uh, uh, and the way that we get things done, the judgment upon it is that there will be absolutely no trace of it left. No Babylon in the kingdom we're going to. Not a trace. It's smashed to pieces so fine, it can be carried away by the wind, which is beautiful to me. Because who, who is the stone? We'll get there. But right now, <laughs> a spoiler alert. Who's the stone? Who's the rock? The cornerstone. He smashes the rule of Babylon. He smashes the way that this world gets it done. And then it's blown away by the wind. And what's another word for wind in Hebrew? Spirit. Then his Holy Spirit takes it all completely away. There's no trace, absolutely no trace of what happens here in the kingdom eternally.
So it's quite the dream. And I know it's right on because Daniel keeps going with it. This was the dream. Now we will tell you its interpretation before the king. So I want you to notice that the interpretation, the very first thing is the deterioration of value within the statue itself. It starts with what? It starts with gold, okay? And it deteriorates in value. Some say it deteriorates in unity. By the way, until it gets to the, to the uh, uh, legs of iron and iron and clay, it, 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 it goes down in unity, all right? And it also becomes more brittle until you get to iron. Head to toes. Gold to iron to iron mixed with clay. But it increases in strength. It increases in confidence. By the time it gets to the leg of irons, that smashes everything. Everything that comes before it, Rome is able to conquer. Well, we'll get there, like I said. But there's never, ever been an empire like Rome. And by the way, there'll never be another one. So it increases in strength, decreases in value, becomes more confident, and becomes more arrogant. Because the other prophetic sections that will use the statue as, the, uh, as the, kind of the key to be able to move on. Because again, four beasts, so forth and so on, everything comes that way. So the statue becomes like the, uh, the answer key to be able to, to, to see it. it becomes more arrogant. By the time it gets down there, there's even a little horn that comes up speaking arrogant boasts. Becoming a beast, which by the way, the whole world wonders after. So, O you king, king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory into whose hand he has given human beings wherever they live, the wild animals of the field, the birds of the air, and whom he has established as ruler over them all, you are what? You are the head of gold. That's you, your kingdom. The head or the beginning at first. It's a chronological progression. Gold by far was the most popular metal in all of Babylon. The Greek historian Herodotus marveled at the lavish use of gold. He writes, I found the gold in the walls, in the statues, and pretty much in every other object in Belshazzar's palace. They were testimony to Babylon's splendor. And Daniel doesn't stop with the nation. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. You did this. So no doubt that this first nation is Babylon. In fact, it was even predicted uh, in, in Jeremiah. I don't, I'm sorry, I don't have that. Yeah, predicted in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 51.7 says, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hands, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine and the nations went mad. Nebuchadnezzar, your method, how you came to conquer the world, by the way, at age 22 Alexander the Great, about the same, right? 21, 22? All right, we'll get there. We gotta go down a couple of loops in the statue, right? 
He's saying, you, Nebuchadnezzar, this method, how you did it, you put two powers together that were never together before in order to do something for you, for yourself, for your nation. Does he use divine power? You bet he does. He believes he's divine. He believes he's a God because of this. So divine power, some sort of spiritual divine power and the mightiest army on earth all come together. This is the beginning of the Babylonian way of worship, of the Babylonian way of getting things done. Babylon worships the gods that are the most powerful and cause the most destruction. So this is the beginning. This is what it implies. Because who would be in charge of this statue? Who'd be in control? Just like you and me. Who's in control? Our head. It all then will trickle from the head. He is the one. This method, he himself is in control. For right now, it's Nebuchadnezzar. And as long as he's alive, well, except for about seven years that's coming, all right, as long as he's alive, it, 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 it flows through him. It's his way. He's God of Babylon. Yes, he's a little man God, but he's God. And who can argue with him, right? I walked right into your temple. Your God did nothing. I walked right into your temple. I took his ark of his covenant. I took his very throne. I took the throne of God. I took everything else and I brought it to the land of Shinar where I'm sure there is a memorial or there is a foundation of the Tower of Babel which again is the earth's way of worship. And he put them all in there. How could we argue? How could anybody argue, right? What was supposed to happen to people if you defiled the altar of God? Antiochus, uh, at the end of the Greek empire, he's gonna do the exact same thing. He's gonna walk right into the temple and sacrifice a pig on the altar. And what happened to him? Nothing. So how could we argue? Divine power then will be manifested in some sort of mighty way of getting things done. They'll force out of fear and coercion to get people to worship them as God. Shinar, Babel, Babylon, all that which would oppose God, from Daniel all the way to Revelation. The Babylonian way of worship, the Babylonian way of governing, the Babylonian way of treating other people works fine on this planet. People wonder after it. We're always looking for strength and power. Why? Because that's where we find safety. We make sure that we're on the right side because this place is a place to fear, isn't it? We're born in fear. And yet you have this other way of worship. You have this other voice. It says, no, the beast, I, I understand his power, I get it, but I got another way. The church of the lamb that was slain to be governed by love, to get things done by love. So one head, this is how man-gods get things done, as I said. Wealth, power, fear, intimidation, all a mixture of divine and civil, divine and military. 
They'll carry it out in military and then tell you that it was God who gave them the victory. And their, and their God happens to be this little man God named what? Nebuchadnezzar. You know what's a pain? Is that my word program does not learn Nebuchadnezzar. So when I put it in my notes, I have to type it completely out. So I call him Nebi. So in my notes it says Nebi, and when I see Nebi, I say Nebuchadnezzar to you. Because try typing Nebuchadnezzar like twice in one paragraph. It is a pain. Babylon falls when Belshazzar is defeated by Darius the Mede in 539. And then what happens? After you there will arise another kingdom, what? Inferior to you. An inferior kingdom, Daniel says so, and the inferiority is uh, expressed in the metal that it's made of. It's made of what? It's made of silver, the chest of arms and silver. Not just Persian, by the way. I got this slide, and I love these slides because I love the pictures from which they take it. Uh, I love the artist who does this, but all he put in here was Persia. It's not just Persia. In 550, the Medes fall under Persian domination when Cyrus, who was Persian, defeats King Astyagus of the Medes. Cyrus was actually Astyagus' grandson. So the man that is going to release Israel and send them back He actually was the grandson of the king that defeated the Medes that made this a Medo-Persian kingdom. Like I said, the statue deteriorates in value and it even deteriorates in unity. The one kingdom is replaced now by what? By two. Scripture refers to this kingdom as of the Medes and the Persians uh, from, from here on out. Silver was used in their taxation system. Wealthy people still used gold, but was only for the wealthy. Everybody else used silver, and they uh, collected their taxes in silver. Everything was done in silver by the Medes and the Persians. That was the standard monetary value. It implies great wealth. It's still pretty wealthy. If everybody's got silver, Right? It'll last until Darius III falls to the Greco-Macedonian armies in 331 BC. And then another kingdom, a third kingdom of what? Of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Did you know that that, uh, bronze was a Greek specialty? The Greeks figured out how to do it. It's uh, copper, right? And about 12% tin, that's what makes bronze. It makes it a little stronger, it keeps it more pliable, and it was a Greek specialty. Once they figured out how to do it, they bronzed everything. Their shields, their swords, everything was all made of bronze. As a matter of fact, did you know that Greece actually is in the Hebrew scriptures? Ezekiel 27, 13 says, Javan, Tubal, and Meshech traded with you. They exchanged human beings and vessels of bronze for merchandise. Javan is the Hebrew word for Greek. According to Herodotus, again, our, our historian I quoted before, that when the pharaoh Sametek I consulted an oracle concerning revenge on his Persian foes, he was told that it would come by way of the sea in the hands of the men of bronze. He didn't believe it until one day he saw a Greek ship that was wrecked on the shores 
and he spotted the entire armor of bronze. And he he knew then these were the guys and he immediately allied himself with them. Bronze denotes conquest. The Medes and the Persian wore woven gowns to fight in. In other words, strong cloth to try to, you know, keep, to, to keep arrows and swords from, from penetrating. The Greeks began to use bronze. They had armor. Oops. So this is how long they last, 331 to 168. Okay. And history confirms this prophecy. After you will arise a kingdom inferior to yours, and yet a third, and yet a third of the kingdom of bronze which shall rule all over the earth. I put it there. It'll rule all over the earth. So again, history confirms this. It may not seem like it, but Alexander the Great in less than seven years, had swept over Phoenicia, Palestine, and Egypt. He got as far as India and Persia. Conquered Persia on the way, goes all the way to India. The only reason that he turned around and came back, that he left Mongolia and China alone, the only reason that he did that was that his troops were sick of it and they wanted to go home. That's why he took the title King of Persia. He begins to, uh, to uh, integrate, assimilate everywhere that he went. Like I said, he would have taken what was then known, uh, what would have been known as China, uh, but his troops revolted and came back home. So on his way back, he finds a Persian princess and he marries her and he brings her all the way back to what used to be the Medo-Persian kingdom and that finalizes it. See, I'm done. She's my princess now, and I'm the king of Persia. So it's not just military, it was also culture. It now flourishes in the remotest part of the world. So vast that Alexander realizes it could disintegrate as he orders assimilation. So commands soldiers to intermarry all natives, he weds a Persian princess himself. The Greek language and culture spreads everywhere. It was known, if you're ever reading and you want to know the meaning or never understood what it meant to be Hellenized, it meant to be Greek. And by the way, we're completely Hellenized in Western culture. Our ways of thought are Hellenized ways. Plato, Socrates. Western culture, Western thought is Greek thought. It went everywhere. Influences the civilization, like I said, all the way up to today. So Rome then takes, Rome then annexes Macedonia in 142 BC, and then it takes the rest of Greece by 168 BC. And there'll be a what? A fourth kingdom, as strong as iron. In as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all things in pieces. It crushes, it smashes. Now we get the picture then that what Rome did then was that they came in and they just wiped everything out, burned it all to the ground and started over. No, that's not what the prophecy says because that's not what they did. See, Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. He looked and said, why should I destroy, okay, that which could benefit me while I'm ruling the world? 
So when, like he got to Palestine, he put, instead of burning down houses and farms and vineyards and everything else, he put people to tend them. That way he could collect the money for it. Rome did the exact same thing. By the time it gets to Rome, Philip and Alexander in Greece had perfected it. Rome then took it even further and they did it better than anybody had ever done. They just assimilated it. And as I pointed out before, that the most powerful uh, empire that has ever been known, they rarely needed to use force. You were free pretty much to do what you wanted. They gave you religious freedom. Practice your religion, okay? All we're looking for is just a, a, an oath every year. We want an oath every year that you actually also worship the emperor and you're not going to revolt against him and pay your taxes and Rome would leave you alone. Do, uh, don't do either of those things and uh, you're, you'll find out why the peace of Rome was because everybody was scared to death. They would make an example of you. It's the first republic in all history. Able to control from afar the most diverse of all peoples. Why was an emperor who lived in Rome able to control everything else? Because they made it a republic. Made it their own. Vini, vidi, vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. And if that weren't enough, like I said, resistance beyond that was dealt with swiftly, severely. Gaul burned entire villages, suppressed the Druids, destroyed Carthage, uh, sieged Jerusalem. Jerusalem was one of those that never ever was able to experience the peace of Rome because they were constantly rebelling against the two things that Rome required. They had a God that lived in that temple, a single God that, by the way, they got laughed out of the Roman Senate when they were told that. They only worship one God? Who are these backward swamp water people? And they believed that that tax money belonged to him. And when you have just one God and you believe that everything belongs to him and you have an emperor who's claiming some sort of divine power and he's trying to tax you, rebellion is always on the horizon in a place like that. At the time, Palestine is no bigger than what we would consider our northeastern New England states. Not much bigger than what Palestine is today. But it took Rome to build nine garrisons in that place in order to keep peace. You know how many garrisons they had in Egypt? One. Because these dang Hebrews are always rebelling. It lasts 500 years, nearly twice as long as the longest of all the others. So barbarian, we know, invaders defeat the last emperor. His name was Odaeser in 476 CE. So 168 to 476 AD. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It'll be divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay says it'll be a divided kingdom, but it'll have the toughness of what? Of the iron. The, the clay is never apart from the iron. So if you consider the clay weak, all you do is remember that it is completely splinted, if you will, by iron. 
It may seem divided, but it is the strongest one yet. So to be a divided, but not as divided as we see. It's seen as positive. What was so impressive about Rome was her unity. History shows it'll never be united again, but according to this, it, it, it won't. It was partly strong and partly brittle, strong and weak. There are nations that would be rich and poor, but as with the other metals, it'd be a characteristic of those nations. The clay should be here too. Whenever the word clay is used in scripture, it is always associated with a potter. Isaiah 64, eight, O Lord, you are the father, we are the clay, you are our potter, we are the work of your hand. So it evokes this human person relationship and the dependence of the creator. Think of what the Holy Roman Empire comes up with. How it transitions to be a holy Roman Empire rather than just the civil Roman Empire. It's having a human God. But this one, this one claims to be the God of all. Clay always has a strong religious connotation. We've got good reason to believe that this clay is a power of religious nature. See, because not only was clay used for pots and everything else, but it always had to be shaped by what? By who? By a potter. It had to be shaped with human hands in order to make it into whatever you made it. And they also made idols out of clay. So whenever you see clay, you have this idea of it being a religious connotation. And we know that's exactly what happened. The religious power or the religious way of doing things began to mix with the military and the civil power of Rome. And when it came together, it became mightier than it ever anybody ever imagined. The fall of the Roman Empire brings up a new political power. It's a religious one this time. Constantine claims that he becomes the, the first emperor of the, Roman, uh, the Holy Roman Empire. He didn't call it that. In fact, it doesn't become that way completely for another 300 years after Constantine. But if you know anything about Constantine and how he became emperor, the battle of, of, of I forgot the name of the bridge, the one that put him in charge, the one that made him emperor, he claimed he had a dream and the dream was given to him by God. And he looked up into the sun and there was a cross there a key and a row, Greek letters, put together it looks like uh, a cross on the end with a handle on it. And he said, by this symbol, you shall be victorious. So he paints a red cross on all his shields and the next day, they're one. And by the way, after that, he then baptizes his entire army into the river and he becomes what will become an office of the Holy Roman Emperor. Like I said, not immediately. It'll take about 400 years. The text has it surviving till when? How long does this thing go on? This, uh, this new nation. How long does it go on? Till the second coming. The rock hits the feet. They're still around, which means they're around when? Right now. Right? 437 AD, right? We, I know, we gotta get to Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, but we're getting there, all right, we're getting there. 
It's seen as the last attempt of the man-God process, the pinnacle of such, but the bottom of humanity's attempt. It's the last uh, uh, stronghold, if you will, of a man who claims to be God and claims to have civil and military power that will get things done. This is the last stronghold. This is the Alamo of that. And why is it the pinnacle? Why is it that? Why? Because the God part of the equation is supposed to be Christianity. It's the last one that, that uses the religious power claiming it to be Christianity. The divine power in Greece, the divine power in Medo and Persia, the divine power in, in, in Babylon were all idols. They were all uh, idolatrous worship. This one claims to be Christianity. This one claims that they worship Christ. So I say supposedly to be Christianity, but it isn't. Because the true Christ will only be recognized not by his power, but by what he gives up. He's a lamb that was what? Slain. He's known by his defeat, not by his victory. So this is adopted, it's co-opted, like I said, originally by Constantine and later by all his successors. They grow up to utilize its unique position as a state religion. Constantine is the one that makes Christianity the official state religion of the Roman Empire. The Edict of Constantine, 321 A.D., It's power, whether temporal or spiritual, just gets mixed and it eclipses all kingdoms and empires that came before. And he said, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they'll combine with one another the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. No matter how good it looks, this God-man process, no matter how, no matter how successful it is, the, the, the urge to use selfish power <coughs> when you want to and lamb power when you want to, it won't hold together, but it sure is attractive. I mean, who wouldn't? want to worship that God. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna uh, speak for you, but I will confess for myself. If I were to completely turn myself over to that human nature, that God would be the God that I would want to worship. One that tells me that I can be Christ-like when I want to, and then when I get to that neighbor I can't love, I can be dragon-like if I want to. Who wouldn't want to worship that God? That's why the whole world wanders after the beast. Because you all just thought of that neighbor that you couldn't love, didn't you? Who wouldn't? We created him in our image. And yes, he came to power at a particular time with a particular church, but that is human nature. That's our nature in there. That fallen nature. That's us. But Jesus says it won't hold together. It doesn't hold together when it comes in contact with his kingdom. 
When it comes in contact with his kingdom, it crumbles. And yes, one day it will physically crumble. But right now, spiritually, we can make it crumble wherever we are as long as we're going to live by not the Babylonian rule, but by the rule of the new Jerusalem. As long as we can interject love in the mixture of that, right in between the iron and the clay, it'll crumble. We're here to do that. We're here to show people how Babylon could be completely dismantled. Love can destroy it all. And it ends up doing it. In the days of those days, the kings, the God of heaven will be set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and the kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. It will put to an end the Babylonian way of governing, the Babylonian way of rule, the Babylonian way of worship. We don't take one iota, one trace of selfishness into the kingdom with us. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This kingdom is like no other. It opposes them on all levels. It destroys the entire statue. It's made of one material. What is it? It's made of stone. All this is Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you. By the way, he's speaking to the church. The stone that was rejected by you. He's speaking to the people that claim to believe in God. Peter is saying that, that, that there has been a temptation to worship like Babylon all the way back, and you reject him. And the reason we reject him is because we don't, by nature, worship that way. We don't, by nature, want a God that way. We want a powerful God. We need a powerful God. We need protection. And we're willing, sometimes, to give up our freedom for that protection. Jesus said, worship me and you can remain free. Can't guarantee what's gonna happen to you. But I can guarantee where you're going. One day, one day, it'll all be put to an end. You don't form stone with your hands. When they form stone uh, altars back in the book of Genesis. He said, when you make an altar of stone, uh, Exodus, I'm sorry, do not build it of hewn stones, for if you chisel upon it, you profane it. The altar is where God interacted with humanity. That's where he, he uh, shed blood to, to forgive sins. That's his interaction, to be able to forgive so he can walk and talk with you. He said, I don't want you profaning it by trying to shape it yourself. It's mine, he says. So stone was always his. They used stones to build altars, to build monuments, to build the temple. He put the Ten Commandments on stone. Did Moses carve it in there? No. No human hands have, have, have uh, cut it, if you will, or shaped it. The stone in this form represents the divine dimension. It is God himself. Daniel sees the stone as growing into a mountain that swallows the entire earth. Babylon regarded mountains as the home of the gods. This stone is hurled from heaven, not an offshoot from other kingdoms. It destroys the rest without a trace. It has nothing to do with its predecessors. 
See, it comes from heaven. It doesn't go out or further. I don't know what would be left. Toenails, I guess. This Jesus, the stone rejected by you, the builders, it is now the cornerstone. So, for those of us who live in exile, who always seem to be on the losing side. See, love loses here. If you decide you want to love, you, you, you may even have to give up your own life. That's what martyrs had to do. Love always looks like it's losing. By the way, that's why the path is narrow. <laughs> People who are willing to love, love who? Everybody. Is there any qualification to that? For God so loved the world, except for a few groups of people. Except for those, you know, who you can't seem to handle. Except for those who you can't seem to wrap your mind around it. You can, I, I, you know, go ahead. You don't have to love them. As a matter of fact, you could begin to persecute them. That's what the beast offers. That's why the road to God is narrow. For God so loved the world. Love is narrow. It always looks like it's losing. The beast has everything. He has the numbers. He has the money. He has it all. He has the power to carry out his will. And he does it with fear and with coercion. That's what we're up against when we live here. They made fun of Israel. Anytime they saw an Israelite, a Babylonian would say, uh, according to Psalm 137, uh, verse one, the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept as we thought of Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our lyres. For our captors asked us there for songs, uh, our tormentors for amusement, sing us the songs of Zion. And we said, how can we sing of the Lord in an alien land? We'll be tormented by Babylon. Go ahead, sing the song of your God. And it isn't easy to do when your God seems to be defeated. It isn't easy to do when you see uh, this, this, this forming, when you, when you see uh, 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 Christianity clamoring after civil power. It isn't easy. We forget that the compassion of the lamb is the love of and that is what destroys all evil. Not the man-God method, but the lamb. So we don't forget that this is our exile. We're not here because of someone else's sin. We're here because of who? Because of our own. Jesus stands ready to save. so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. It ends, the whole vision ends with compassion. We forget that he, had, he already produced an edict that if somebody didn't do this, he was gonna kill them all. Daniel comes with God, God's compassion that he had on everybody who may have died if he didn't do this, God comes and has compassion on Daniel, his friends, and everyone else. By the way, on all of the uh, uh, necromancers and the astrologers and everything else, he saved them too. Mm -hmm. 
So his compassion extends to the rest of all the wise men. God's people are not. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has been made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Inasmuch as you saw. Just as we saw the stone is just as we see Jesus every day in our exile. And everybody who worships that man God, they need to know. They need to know Jesus. And that's all we're here to do. Thank you for a little extra time. Um, I, get, I, I suppose you can tell from my titles, certain words appeal to me in the scripture and that's usually where I get my titles from. It's usually a quote from where we're studying and there was something about that. Inasmuch as you saw, he doesn't let Nebuchadnezzar forget that God was willing to reveal himself to him. The guy that started it all, the guy that starts every sort of worship against God. Babylon becomes against God. The guy that started it all was given a vision from God. How many of us claim that we would want something like that? How many of us claim that we want the dream? Have you ever come across somebody who said, you know what, if I had seen those signs, I'd be a believer. Well, the reason that I know that that's not true is they're not being shown the signs, right? In as much as you saw, I love that Daniel just says, this God that I worship, he wants you too. And what's amazing about Daniel, like I said, is that he, by the time of the end of the Babylonian kingdom, he'll be third in command. And do you think he got there by being a pain? Do you think he got there by threatening the power of his God on him? No, he got there because this is the way that he treated him. Inasmuch as you saw Nebuchadnezzar, God's willing to talk to anybody if they'll listen. Imagine if we could begin to look at all the people out there the way that Daniel saw Nebuchadnezzar. What could we do then with the little man God? Thank you again. A little extra time. This Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, it has become our cornerstone. This is what we see. This is what we reveal. Daniel becomes just our example on how to do it. There. So you got some prophecy first. Now you're going to have to do without it for another four chapters. Okay. Are you okay with that? All right. Thank you again. Thank you.